That would be the matter of Carol v. Trump. Council, whenever you're ready. Counsel, how are the protections afforded by presidential immunity reduced by a finding that it is an waivable defense? Reduced in terms of the... So you're saying that um, the protections of presidential immunity uh, need to be, they need to be protected. My question is how are the protections afforded by that by presidential immunity, how are they reduced if this court were to find it is a waivable defense? If the separation of powers would be weakened if we were to allow the judiciary to um, essentially pass judgment and exercise jurisdiction over the president's official conduct, I think it's very well established through a line of um, cases being public acting. Why shouldn't a president be able to uh, waive the defense if, if he or she wished to. I mean, there may be some strategic reasons not to assert it. Well, I think, again, it goes back to the checks and balances, the separation between the three separate branches. Um, and well, sh should um, a president be able to waive it, to waive the immunity if, if he wanted to? No, because it's a jurisdictional issue when the president is not able to. I mean, this goes back to the holding and phrase act and in short, but they said that the political branches cannot choose to waive um, the separation of powers. They can't opt into an interbranch conflict. And that's the whole purpose of the separation of powers, to make sure that they stay separate and they don't intrude upon one another. Um, and allowing one... Well, isn't it... Uh, uh, didn't the Supreme Court compare it to um, prosecutorial and judicial immunity, and, and, and aren't those immunities waivable? The Supreme Court did compare them in, in several, in one aspect, but the primary justification for presidential immunity, the Supreme Court made clear was the separation of powers doctrine, which is not comparable to judges and prosecutors. Uh, the reason they compared to judges and prosecutors is that's a common law and public policy immunity that's based on the fact that they need to be able to do their job freely, but there is no separation of powers consideration when you're talking about judges and prosecutors. So I think, and again, this in Nixon, the Supreme Court said that the most compelling justification for presidential immunity is the separation of power doctrine. So I think that's a much bigger consideration than the common law uh, considerations for judges and prosecutors. Has any case held that presidential immunity is jurisdictional? 
Well, there are there are many cases that have treated it as a matter of subject matter jurisdiction dismissed under twelve b one. There are also cases that have dismissed it at under twelve b six as a merits based defense. So at to this point, it's really been unsettled uh, how courts have have dealt with it. But again, the the main the main case that has dealt with this really the only binding precedent here is Nixon v. Fitzgerald, where they specifically say that it's a, it's a jurisdictional question, that when presidential immunity applies, the courts don't have jurisdiction to hear the case. So the lower courts have dealt with it in a number of different ways. Counsel, if, if it is jurisdictional, then in this case, your client filed a counterclaim of defamation against the plaintiff. If it is jurisdictional, should the trial court have thrown out your client's counterclaim for lack of jurisdiction? Well, the, the counterclaim related to um, conduct that was fairly recent, I believe, was uh, given several months ago. So I think that would be separate uh, apart from the conduct. So, so whether or not the court has jurisdiction is decided temporarily on the, the, the date? Well, I think it's a different question whether the court has jurisdiction over conduct that would have been official presidential conduct as opposed to a counterclaim that relates to conduct that is in no way presidential and really raises no jurisdiction. But doesn't that raise the issue that if we uh, agree that presidential immunity is a non-waivable jurisdictional defect, as you're asking us to do, that if a president is, is sued and wants to litigate or bring cross-claims as the uh, uh, your client did in this case, then the court would have to dismiss those actions for lack of jurisdiction, even if the uh, president wanted to litigate that action? No, I don't believe that's so, Your Honor. The, How so? The statements that, would, that are protected by presidential immunity are statements made by President Trump in June 2019. Those are jurisdictional and subject to presidential immunity in opposition. Later statements made by Ms. Carroll in 20, uh, 2023 really have no connection whatsoever. I understand that argument about the specifics. My question is a little bit broader than that. Assume that we were to agree with you. My hypothetical is what if you, if a president is sued and the president wants to not only litigate that lawsuit, but actually wants to bring cross claims within the same time frame? Are you saying that whether or not the president wishes to pursue that litigation, a court would have to throw it out as lacking jurisdiction? Well, the president is immune from liability in his official conduct. I don't think there's anything precluding the president from bringing suits for anything that potentially relates to his official conduct. I think it's to protect him in his ability to do his job that he's immune for anything that relates to his official conduct. I don't think that would preclude any other actions emanating from that. And uh, I'll, I'll move on, unless there are any other questions, I'll move on to my next point. Uh, so, and should this court find that President's immunity is waivable, President Trump still should have been granted leave to amend to include it as an affirmative defense. Um, notwithstanding the liberal standard under Rule 15, the lower court denied President Trump's request to amend his answer uh, to include President's immunity based on supported delay and the supposed futility of his argument. Uh, respectfully, the district court failed to undertake the proper analysis in coming to this decision. First, the record does not support a finding that there was any undue delay on President Trump's part. 
The case was litigated for three years without the assertion of the defense. Isn't that so? That's correct. Yeah, and if that's the case, was it, how was it an abuse of discretion for Judge Kaplan to say it's too late? Well, in terms of reason, there's no prejudice. Discovery was already conducted, largely conducted? Right, and on the issue of discovery, since it was the Westfall Act issue at the time, Ms. Carroll had the opportunity and, in fact, did question extensively as to President Trump's state of mind and whether or not he was acting within the scope of his employment, which is a narrower test than the other perimeter tests. So any discovery that they needed to get, they had the opportunity to do so throughout the course of discovery. And I think it's important to stress here that the question is whether or not, when you're making an application for men, the question is whether there was any additional discovery that was necessary or any additional delay that would have been caused by the amendment, which here there was no additional delay and no additional discovery that was necessary. So really there's no prejudice to Ms. Carroll by simply allowing the amendment as it was sought. And then finally, even if presidential immunity is waivable and even if the district court properly denied the request for leave to amend, President Trump still properly asserted the defense by subsequently raising his answer to Ms. Carroll's amended complaint. Both sides here agree that the court's ruling in Gilmore v. Shearson, this court's ruling in Gilmore v. Shearson, and Shields v. City Trust govern here, but the district court overlooked this court's binding case law entirely and instead relied on an unreported southern district case. So I have a question on that issue. Let's assume, as you posited, if it is a defense and if it is waivable, had the amended complaint not been filed, would you then concede that the defense was waived? If it is waivable and leave to amend was properly denied? Yes. Had the plaintiff not filed the amended complaint, and if it is a valid defense, non-jurisdictional and waivable, would you agree then, would you concede that your client waived it by not bringing it, that defense, until after the amended complaint? I think in that circumstance, assuming that it is waivable and that there was no leave to amend that was properly denied, then I would say that the defense was not properly raised at that point. But given the filing of the amended complaint under Shields and Gilmore, it was properly raised because those cases stand for the proposition that when an amended complaint is filed, it supersedes and replaces the original complaint, renders it of no legal effect, and there are only certain defenses that are not automatically provided upon filing of the amended complaint, and those are the defenses listed in Federal Rule of Civil Procedures called B-2 and B-5. And clearly, is not one of the defenses from 12B-6, or sorry, from 12B-2 through 12B-5, and even Ms. Carroll's position has been all along that it's a 12B-6 defense. So even if the court were to accept that position, there's no question that it was properly raised under Shields and Gilmore in response to the amended complaint. So I think no matter how you look at it, whether it's that residential immunity is a jurisdictional defense that's not waivable, whether the district court should have given us leave to amend to include it as a defense, or whether it was properly raised in response to the filing of the amended complaint, the defense was properly raised and was properly invoked by President Trump. So can I ask you simply, I want to make sure I understand your argument. 
Uh, even if we conclude that presidential immunity is waivable, you don't dispute that presidential immunity was waived, if waivable. We don't dispute that it was not raised in the answer. But in any event, you, you, you can move on to a second tier argument, uh, namely that he could still assert presidential immunity uh, at the time of the filing of the amended complaint. Is that right? That's right. And uh, finally, as to the merits of presidential immunity, it's our position that presidential, presidential immunity is a meritorious defense here. Um, the Supreme Court in Nixon v. Fitzgerald established that the president is immunized from liability for conduct falling within the outer perimeter of his official responsibilities. Crucially, this test is an objective one. It's focused on the nature of the act in question, not the motive underlying it. The Nixon court expressly rejected a subjective test because it would subject the president to trial on virtually every allegation that an action was unlawful or was taken for a forbidden purpose, and that would deprive presidential immunity of its intended effect. As a result, presidential immunity can be overcome by allegations of bad faith or malice, and even alleged wrongful acts lay within the outer perimeter of the president's authority. Here, viewed objectively, there's no question that President Trump was acting from the outer perimeter of his office when he issued statements in response to Ms. Carroll's allegations. One of the statements was issued in an official White House press release, while the other two were given in direct response to reporters' questions at the White House. In addition to denying the substance of Ms. Carroll's allegations, the statements also addressed numerous highly political issues, including Justice Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing, the role of media and politics, the state of the Federal Reserve, and current foreign affairs, and they were all in response to questions from reporters. These statements were also issued in a defensive manner. Given the serious accusations made by Ms. Carroll, President Trump, then sitting, then sitting president, faced an unprecedented and unprovoked attack on his character. As both the leader of the nation and the head of the executive branch, he cannot sit idly by and remain quiet in the face of these sensationalized allegations. He had a duty to respond. At a minimum, it was necessary to maintain the continued trust and respect of his constituents and to preserve his ability to carry out his responsibilities as president. In denying that the challenge conduct was within the outer perimeter of President Trump's official conduct, the district court deviated from the objective test required by Nixon. For instance, the district court accepted that President Trump was addressing a matter of public concern because the accusation had impugned his character and in turn threatened his ability to effectively govern. And it also accepted the premise that President's speech on a matter of public concern comes within the President's official responsibility. At this point, the district court's inquiry should have ended. Count. Nonetheless, it proceeded to perform the type of highly intrusive inquiry that the Nixon court expressly prohibited. The district court twice characterized the challenge statements as a personal attack against Ms. Carroll and found that the statements were made for an improper purpose. But by looking towards President Trump's alleged motive for making the statements, the district court failed to utilize the objective approach that is required for assessing the presidential Counsel, is this a good uh, breaking point in your argument? I noticed you're almost eight minutes over, and I will uh, give you the time that you've saved for rebuttal. But if you uh, have a few arguments uh, to 
wrap up, just wanted to remind you that uh, you're about eight minutes over. Thank you. May it please the court. My name is Joshua Matz, and I represent Plaintiff Appellee Eugene Carroll. Virtually every argument that Mr. Carroll presented, both in his reply brief and the argument today, is mistaken. I'm going to go through them one by one to make sure that I address thoroughly each of the contentions that he set forth. Um, I'll start with the point about waivability. As we explain at great length in our brief, the Supreme Court in Nixon patterned the law of presidential absolute immunity on existing traditions of absolute immunity, uh, a tradition of a doctrine that had long been understood to be waivable at the discretion of the person who is protected by the immunity doctrine. Uh, the uh, presidents, the Department of Justice, and federal courts have overwhelmingly shared that understanding. Uh, I know sometimes there can be the effect where both sides say CEG, and they cite a few cases, and it looks the same. It is decisively, decisively in our paper. We reviewed every single case since Nixon that cites Nixon for this proposition. And about 75% of them understand it as non-jurisdictional, which is consistent with the overwhelming practice of the executive branch and prior precedents. Now, against all, and, you know, and, and I would have one last point to this, understanding it in, as non-waivable would mean that the judiciary is forcing presidents to allow the courts to adjudicate the outer limits of the presidential office in a circumstance where the president doesn't want them to do that, and where the president might, in fact, prefer for strategic or other reasons to litigate a case on the merits or to bring counterclaims, which I've come to suggestion. Now, against all of this, Mr. Trump advances essentially two arguments. The first is that because presidential absolute immunity implicates broader structural considerations, uh, it cannot be waivable. That is open. The vast majority of doctrines that arise from the separation of powers are waived. That includes the Appointments Clause, the Recess Appointments Clause, the Non-Delegation Doctrine, the Joint Commerce Clause, many limits on non-article two tribunals. Can, can, can I ask you if you would respond to um, Attorney Medeo's uh, response to my question, and I pose the same question to you, which is, how are the protections afforded by presidential immunity reduced in any way by a finding that it is a waivable defense. His response, I believe, was that it undermines the separation of powers doctrine. How do you respond to that? Uh, it does no such thing. Uh, I would <clears throat> say that if anything, the opposite is true. Finding that this is a waivable doctrine is to say only that it is within the discretion of the president to choose whether to assert it. Given that this doctrine exists for the purpose of protecting the president's discretion to make choices about when to raise the prerogatives of his or her office, it is perfectly consistent with the premises of absolute immunity to say that it's waivable. If anything, saying that the president cannot waive it, even if they want to, is what would aggrandize the judicial power at the expense of the executive power by unduly limiting executive prerogatives and autonomy which is the very thing that this doctrine exists to protect. And it's hard to imagine that future precedents would suffer any chill in the exercise of their powers by virtue of this doctrine being waivable, since it's up to them whether to waive it. And presumably, the next president will not worry about what would happen if it's waived, because that would only ever occur if they made a willful and voluntary choice to do so. So all it does is give them discretion. 
Um, and so, you know, when Mr. Trump says that because this arises from the separation of powers, it has to be believable, um, that, that's not true. It's simply not true. Many separation of powers principles are believable. That includes many doctrines that protect the prerogatives of the executive branch, like state secrets, like executive privilege, like immunity from compelled congressional testimony of the president and his senior advisors. And when Mr. Trump how do you how do you respond to the argument that even if it is waivable, that once uh, Ms. Carroll filed her amended complaint, that gave Mr. Trump the ability to assert the defense? Absolutely, that argument is foreclosed by Gilmore, and that's the case for four separate reasons. And the court will allow me to walk through them one at a time. Um, and I have to admit, the twelve B five two to five reading was only given in the reply brief, so this is my first chance to respond to it. So I want to make sure I'm thorough about that. The first is that that interpretation of Gilmore conflicts with Gilmore. Because in Gilmore, what was at issue was a motion to compel arbitration. And a motion to compel arbitration, as this court um, uh, has recognized in Barrows versus Brinker Request Corporation, um, and as many courts in the Eastern and Southern Districts have recognized, does not arise under Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 12b2-5. A motion to compel arbitration is ordinarily understood as arising either directly under the FAA Section 4 or as arising under Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 12b6. So Gilmore itself does not support the idea that this defense uh, was brought back to life because it is not a 12b2 and 12b5 defense. The next difficulty with Mr. Trump's position is that it is inconsistent not just with the, with the sort of mechanics of Gilmore, but with the language of it. What Gilmore fundamentally said is the filing of an amended complaint doesn't bring back to life uh, uh, any issue, any, anything that involves the core issue of a party's willingness to submit a dispute to judicial resolution. And it then identified the 12B to the 12B5 uh, 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 modes of defense as just examples of that. But it is hard to think of something that is more obviously an objection uh, to the submission of a dispute to judicial resolution than a claim of absolute immunity from suit in the first place. That's the second problem with their position. The third problem is that accepting their position would create an unequivocal and lopsided circuit split in which this, this court would be the only court to reach that conclusion. As we explained in our brief, <coughs> multiple other courts, all of whom started originally with the Gilmore case, which then went to the 11th Circuit, then to the 6th and 7th Circuits, all of the other circuits that have reached this issue said that when a party files an amended complaint, the only waived defenses that are tried are those that, in fairness, are necessary to meet some kind of fundamental change or novelty in the plaintiff's new allegations. Here, we raise that point in our brief, and Mr. Trump doesn't identify, and can't identify, anything that was new in our amended complaint that, as a matter of fundamental fairness, would require the resuscitation of his otherwise waived defense. Um, and, and, and so if, if this court were to say that our amended complaint brought this defense back to life, it would be in direct contravention of the law of at least the 6th, 7th, and 11th circuits, based on a reading of Gilmore that is well documented from the text of Gilmore. The final point I make, there's one more, is that it would actually also be at odds with how this court has recently interpreted uh, the law governing responsive pleadings and counterclaims. Um, so there was a case called the Geico case, in which what this court clarified is that when a, when a party uh, late in the case, amends its complaint. Uh, uh, the only counterclaims that may be raised in response to the amended complaint are those that relate directly to what is new in the amended complaint. You can't allege counterclaims that you could allege at the beginning of the exhibit. 
And so, as part of a broader jurisprudence of how this court thinks about what responds to amended pleadings, their position, I think, is more close. One of your claims on this issue was that um, your client was prejudiced because you were unable to conduct discovery on the issue of presidential immunity had it been raised three years earlier. What discovery would you have sought in terms of addressing the issue of immunity discovery? I'm going to be very specific in answering that question. There are three forms of discovery, and I'm going to name names of these questions you would have asked. Before I do that, if you'll indulge me, I just want to set up why we would need this discovery. Um, and I'm going to start in answering that with the Clinton versus Jones case, because it really comes from that. So in Clinton versus Jones, most of the claims involved uh, acts that Mr. Clinton committed before he was in office. But there was one claim that Paula Jones alleged, a defamation claim arising uh, from Clinton's acts while he was president. Specifically, Jones alleged in her defamation claim that Clinton had directed his White House aides and the senior White House spokesperson to, quote, publicly brand her liar by denying that the incident had occurred. For that claim alone, the Eighth Circuit noted that whether presidential immunity applies is, quote, not free from doubt. And the Supreme Court, in its opinion, did not reach that issue. It stated only that that defamation claim, quote, arguably may involve conduct covered by presidential immunity. Clinton thus saw a close case, an arguable case, where the president, in coordination with senior White House aides and press officials, issued a bare denial of sexual misconduct while he's in office. Here, of course, Mr. Trump went well beyond that, issued a series of attacks with highly inflammatory personal attacks on Ms. Carroll. Um, and as far as we can tell from the limited discovery we have on this, did so with no involvement whatsoever of anyone in the Can so you, can you answer my, yeah. I, I appreciate that you want to make these arguments, but if you would uh, kindly answer the question that, that I posed, and if you need me to repeat it, I'm happy to do so. I don't, and I don't. Okay. The reason I wanted to lay that out is to explain the legal relevance of what I'm about to describe, which is the discovery. So first, in his deposition, we would have asked Mr. Trump for a lot more detail about the process through which he had issued and prepared the June 2019 statements. And we would have also have asked questions, which we didn't ask, about how that compared to the usual process by which he had issued other statements. And what would that have, how would that have informed the argument? It would have informed it, I mean, again, the standard for discovery is relevance. And under Clinton versus Jones, where the court characterized as, as an arguable case, the bare denial of a, of a, of a sexual assault allegation um, by a president who issued an act of coordination with senior White House personnel. We think it would have been highly relevant that Mr. Trump went well beyond the bare denial. He did so in a series of statements, and he did so apparently without any involvement or coordination of any other White House personnel. Um, I, I think under the Clinton case, that would at least be relevant to the analysis. Um, so we would have asked him for I have several more forms of discovery just to sort of lay out what we would have asked. Um, we would have asked him how this process was similar to or different than his pre- and post-presidency process for making similar statements, responding to similar claims. And we would have asked him about inconsistencies between his deposition testimony and his written discovery responses. In those responses, he had identified six people, Dan Scavino, Nick Luna, Molly Michael, Oak Hicks, Sarah Lyons, and Jared Kushner as involved in the process by which he made these statements, but at his deposition, he denied all of that and insisted that the written responses didn't apply to him. That's the first category of discovery we would have sought. The second is that we would have pursued third-party discovery into some of the individuals that he 
and names, um, a, a portion of discovery that we didn't undertake because we were anxious that doing so would invite concerns about executive privilege that could significantly prolong and complicate the litigation. Um, when, when all that was at issue was Mr. Trump's subjective mental purpose for his statements, which was the Westfall Act issue, that discovery seems to us not particularly important. If what mattered was the process and involvement of White House personnel and officials in making these statements that are highly important, finally, third, we would probably sought expert discovery um, for prior senior White House comms and press officials that would have been relevant to the process for such denials. And we may also have pursued requests that we had contemplated sending to the National Archives for some of the uh, internal White House documents surrounding these statements. Again, requests that we didn't pursue given the complexity of that procedure uh, and given that we had not understood any of that to actually be factually at issue, when all that really mattered was his mental state. And so we had significant discovery. I, can, I mean, I was one of the lawyers on the case at the time. These are things that we thought about in real time and made a choice not to do because the risk of prolonging the litigation and creating complex executive privilege rights did not seem worth it to us as measured against the absence of an absolute immunity defense, which Mr. Which Mr. Trump had not raised had not mentioned in years, and at no point in the entirety of the discovery process did he ever indicate that it was irrelevant to the claims or defenses. I'd also note in that process, he threatened several times to raise executive privilege. So our concern about that was not speculative. It was very much in play. And in that respect, Mr. Trump's decision to spring this argument on us three years into the case, on the other side of the close of all fact discovery, was indeed prejudicial. And I would highlight that under this court's precedence, we don't need to show, you know, we don't need to summon Mount Everest in showing how much prejudice we suffer, although I think it was real uh, in terms of our ability to actually meet this issue. Because his delay was for three years, and because he has never, to this day, offered an explanation for it other than the Westfall Act, um, which I can turn to in just a minute, um, the burden for us is to just show that it caused us some prejudice. And I think we can meet that burden. And there was an amendment sought in this case uh, by uh, the defendant to amend the defenses, to add additional defenses, correct? That's right. While the Westfall Act was was pending, just to sort of take this point on the board, there's several problems with it, and that's one of them, which is while the Westfall Act's appeal was pending, if Mr. Trump truly believes that all he was saying in the state court is that he was raising a temporary defense but he was going to preserve his personal immunity for as soon as he was out of office. Well, as soon as he was out of office, Mr. Trump didn't face it. Instead, at the first available opportunity, what he raised was an anti-slap defense and counterpoint. And if Mr. Trump truly believed that the pendency of the Westfall Act had somehow prohibited him from fully litigating the case as a party of his own right or raising his own protections, there's no reason why he would have done that. There's also no reason why he then would have consented to have the case tried before there was a decision on this or why he would have engaged in the entire discovery process. Because a party who believes that they are holding on to absolute immunity from suit does not behave the way that Mr. Trump behaved in this case. Now, Mr. Matz, <clears throat> I take it from what you have said that you would defend Judge Kaplan's dichotomy between, on the one hand, the statements made by Trump denying Carroll's accusation, which Judge Kaplan assumed fell within the so-called outer perimeter of his presidential duties. And on the other hand, Trump's attacks on Carroll. You would accept that dichotomy? Yeah, so, so I think that's 
So for purposes of the merits of the presidential absolute immunity defense, just to make sure. Yes, state, sure. Uh, yes, I, I would think that he would... Tell, tell, me how, argument. tell me how we're supposed to draw the line between these two, between statements denying Carol's accusations and Trump's attacks on Carol with respect to the accusations. Of course, I will answer that. Of course, the court will only reach that question if it concludes that Mr. Trump properly raised this defense. <clears throat> and, and that would be, I should say, a landmark opinion, because no court has ever issued an opinion holding that the president enjoys absolute immunity whenever they speak in public on a matter of public concern. The only opinion on this issue is Judge Meta's opinion, which unequivocally rejected that proposition. Um, but I do think the distinction that we've drawn is, a, is a, an intuitive one, and it's one that is grounded in the Clinton versus Jones case, as well as the underlying foundations of it, which is that even accepting that the administration of government may in some circumstances require that a president responds to questions that are raised about his conduct before he came into office, a denial of those accusations addresses that concern. And I assume that that is why the U.S. Supreme Court and the 8th Circuit in the Clinton case saw it as arguable and as made well that Mr. Clinton would have actually enjoyed an absolute immunity defense there. Although, to be clear, if Mr. Trump's rule was the law, they would have just said he had it. It wouldn't have been a close call. Uh, but they saw it as close to the issue of bear denial. Here, I think the instinct is that there is no Article II function that is further or invoked or in any way advanced by a president engaging in repeated private attacks on a citizen, insulting her appearance, accusing her of making accusations against third parties that have no relevance to the matter at hand, and going beyond denial. And I should say, I appreciate that there's an understandable instinct on the part of the court not to want to essentially line edit the president's statement, which parenthetically is, would not, this court would not need to address concluded that Mr. Trump had in fact waived this. But if the court does get there, the concern on the opposite side of things is that if the president is free to say anything he wants in public, no matter what, because anything the president says is potentially a concern to somebody or could be described as a response to something, then there is And no what exactly is wrong with that? I think what's wrong with that, and Judge Metz has described this at some length in his very thoughtful opinion in the Thompson versus Trump case, which I should note was argued on appeal to the DC Circuit and has been pending before them for quite some time. And so there are those sort of briefing and resources on that that go beyond what the parties have offered in this context. But I think what's wrong with that is two things. First, it takes what is meant to be an immunity for certain official functions and essentially converts it into an immunity for the office as a whole which Clinton told us is not how presidential absolute immunity works. And I think the second problem with it, practically, uh, is January 6th and other circumstances like that. I, I don't think we're in the realm of hypotheticals in acknowledging that there are circumstances in which somebody who holds the office of the president may engage in public speech on matters that have nothing to do with the operation or administration of the government that are not in furtherance of any federal policies or programs or take care duties that cause significant harm to private citizens, where it would be in many ways inconsistent with living in a presidential rather than a monarchical system to say that they are wholly immune for their conduct. Um, and if the court has any further questions. Seeing none from my colleagues, um, thank you, counsel. Thank you very much.
council to uh, keep it uh, fair, I'll give you uh, an extra minute uh, on added onto your rebuttal time because your council went went more than eight minutes over. All right, thank you, council. Okay, so I'd like to address a couple of points. Um, first, I'll just start with the, um, you know, the amended complaint and asserting the, the defense in the answer to the amended complaint. Under Gilmore, again, there's, there's, we cited in our brief that there are many cases which have interpreted. The Gilmore case, first of all, does, and Shield as well, specifically cite to the 12B2 through 12B5 defenses as being the ones, the only ones that are not automatically revived response to a complaint. And many courts have uh, interpreted that as well and agreed with that understanding. But even if that were not the case, there's really only two alternatives here. It's either that presidential immunity is a jurisdictional defense, which would be 12B1, which is what we are contending, or that it's 12B6, a merits-based defense. Under 12B1, obviously, a subject matter questions is not waivable. And under 12B6, as, as the other side contends, um, it's very well established under Shields and Gilmore in those line of cases that any merits-based defense, if, it go, if it's an effort to achieve judicial resolution of the controversy, that it can be um, raised in response to an complaint. So whether it's 12B1 or 12B6, either way, it was effectively revived in response to an complaint. Um, and on to the next point. In terms of the waivability generally, presidential unity, whether or not that protects presidential autonomy or undermines it. The other side that we have to look at here is, is exactly what's happened in this case. President Trump has now tried to raise presidential unity three times and has been rejected by the court three times. And, you know, when you're looking at how courts deal with the, the high deference vote to the office of the presidency and the separation of powers and, you know, making sure that they're not intruding upon executive function, that's exactly the reason why it can't be treated that way. The Count, judiciary, no, go ahead. Please finish. Uh, the judiciary can't be allowed to take a position where it's foreclosing the president from waiving presidential immunity in a situation where he wants to, and he wants to be immune from liability. And now it's you're stuck in a position where the judiciary can continuously reject your attempts to raise this defense, which is a separation of powers-based defense. Counsel, I'm trying to understand why your client um, did not raise the immunity defense uh, initially, if, if it is, uh, you know, a defense wanting to be asserted, um, it's such an absolute defense, why not raise it immediately? But even if not, uh, he sought to amend the answer and added an anti-slap defense and a counterclaim. Why not raise the absolute immunity defense at that time? The anti-slap, that was a to amend the answer, but that was specifically taking advantage of the anti-slap law, and that was the only um, amendment that was included in that motion, strictly anti-slap. It was a very narrow amendment. Um, there was no other defenses raised at that time. But it was, it was a motion to amend the answer to add a defense. It was, that's correct. So why wasn't the other defense added? It, it was simply it was an anti-slap. It was a, it was a motion to amend to anti-slap, and that was the only purpose of the motion at that time. Um, so it simply was, was, not, um, was not included at that time. And, and again, the other issue on discovery, you know, again, just to, just to reemphasize, the Westfall Act appeal was going on this entire time for years. 
and the central question in that appeal was whether or not it was within the scope of, of his employment. And that's a more narrow test, and it's importantly subjective test as well. So the amount of discovery generally needed for a Westfall Act scope of employment test versus an immunity, absolute immunity, presidential immunity, objective test is going to be much more intensive. And in fact, um, Ms. Carroll did uh, conduct much discovery on that issue, and in fact, that, much of that was the basis for their amended complaint, was that they, the questions they had to ask President Trump at his deposition about whether or not it was within the scope of his employment. Um, so they, they certainly had the opportunity to, to obtain that discovery. They did obtain that discovery, and there certainly was no prejudice there in terms of raising the issue then. And again, finally, the last point that I'd like to address is, um, you know, Judge Mehta, in his decision, was based on an entirely different premise when he was talking about the public speech of the president than, than we're dealing with here. Um, that was based on, he was finding that it was based on his capacity as a candidate as opposed to president. It still meant to be an official function. And in fact, in that opinion, he states that it's unquestioned that when the president speaks publicly, that's within the scope of his office. So here, there's not even any conceivable non-official function um, as there was in, in Thompson, where it was, you know, that he could potentially be as a candidate as opposed to president. Here, he's up, he's in front of the press, he's answering questions, he's you know, responding to this um, this important issue of public importance, and I think there's simply no question that he's acting as a president that um, And so the last issue, very quickly, is um, on divestiture. Again, that really comes down to a question based on, on Judge Kaplan's ruling of whether or not the appeal is frivolous, uh, you know, based on all the reasons that we have given here, we obviously believe that this appeal is not frivolous, and for that reason that the, the district court has been divested of jurisdiction in the tendency of this appeal. And unless the court has any other questions, that's all I have. I see no further questions from my colleagues. Thank you, counsel. Uh, that concludes this matter, and the court will take, will reserve decision. Thank you.